All right, everybody. This is Project Herpetoculture Podcast, episode 62. I'm your host, as always, Roy Arthur Blodgett, joined, as always, by the very handsome and charismatic Philip Leeds of Eritz Only. And we have an awesome show today with an excellent guest that I'm excited to get into conversation with. And before we do, we're going to go through our housekeeping, as always. And first, I want to give a shout out to Dylan and the Animals at Home Network for hosting our show. We're super pleased to be part of this network. I also want to give a shout out to Charlie, who edits our audio and um, yeah, keeps us on the tracks over here. Also want to mention Custom Reptile Habitats. They are our first sponsor and um, they make amazing premium PVC reptile enclosures. And they also have a whole product line with universal rocks, all kinds of good stuff. So if you're in the market for any of that and you're looking to make a purchase, if you do so through the link in our bio or description, we'll receive a small commission at no additional cost to you. And that's always really helpful. We also have cold-blooded caffeine and they roast amazing coffee from all over the globe. And they donate 5% of the proceeds from each bag of coffee sold to conservation and coffee growing regions. Um, so if you're interested in trying out a new blend or single origin, please do so and use the code Project Herp for 10% off your order. And um, yeah, we also have fairy tale dragons. That's Heather Moy and Ron St. Pierre, obvious go. legends. And um, they produce some incredible bearded dragons alongside a bunch of other cool, obscure herbs. And um, highly recommend just giving them a follow and seeing what they're up to. It's you'll, you'll always learn something from it. So yeah. And then for those of you who are interested in supporting the show directly with like a monthly donation, something like that, to help us keep the lights on over here. We have a Patreon at patreon.com slash project herpetoculture. And we always welcome new patrons there. Am I missing anything, Phil? Or is that? No, I think, uh, I think that's good for now. We've got some, we got some cool stuff coming up, man. I'll tell you what. I, I'll tell oh yeah, you. we do. Yeah. we got a lot, a lot. I'm really, I'm really pumped. I can't wait. It's true. We are yeah. working on some cool stuff. Well, anyway, with all of that out of the way, I'm very pleased to introduce our guests. And that is Andrew and Sarah Gilpin of Living Art Creations. Welcome. What's up, y'all? Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us tonight. How, how are Thanks things for having us. Hell yeah. What's that? How are things going over there? Oh, pretty good. Uh, just trying to get caught up on being gone a whole bunch this summer and uh wrapping up the breeding season but still have a bunch of eggs left to hatch so always got something going on here nice amazing heck yeah yeah so uh the way we kind of want to start uh it's just the way we start every show can you can you guys tell us um your individual sort of herpetocultural origin stories like how did how did uh you know this kind of weird hobby that we all participate in become a part of each of your lives well we kind of started it together. Andrew had a couple of odd pets, like a beard dragon and some other geckos when I first met him. But then he got me my first crested gecko for my 16th birthday. <laughs> and then it just kind of evolved from there. Naturally, we decided to pick up a few more crested geckos and try breeding them. And then before you know it, we have a whole room full of them and then <laughs> expanding into other species and everything, too. So. Um, but yeah, I would say we kind of started it together, really. Yeah. I mean, as far as the, um, herpetoculture side of things, it was pretty well together as far as like actually breeding. Um, but we've always 
both just kind of been into looking for frogs and snakes, kind of like, you know, most of the people in the hobby kind of start young and always finding stuff out there. But uh, the field herping and photography side of things kind of came after we started breeding the geckos because we got into photography to better represent the animals that we keep. Oh, and then cool. that kind of that kind of like evolved into like getting into macro photography and then learning how to do all the photography out in the field. And so as I learned that, I would basically double up on all the camera gear. So Sarah was learning everything too. So we both do a bunch of photography and stuff too. That's awesome. Very cool. I, I have a I have a big like pet peeve with horrible photography. Like yeah. you know, yeah. I I I don't know why. I mean, I so I, for me it was because I got a modest photographic education as a part of my college career um, just because I went to art school. So I took photography courses. And so when I found when, as soon as you realize like how easy it is or how easy it can be rather to take decent quality photographs or at least clear photographs, you know, it it became this thing where it's like, my God, I just hate seeing crap photos. It drives me nuts. And, you know, back, I guess we probably got our first, semi-real camera in like 2005 i actually won one of those stupid radio call-in uh contest things really it was for it was for when like a playstation portable first came out (laughs) and it was like it was to win a playstation portable but it wasn't actually sponsored by playstation so they actually just cut you a check to go buy one and i was like oh (laughs) i'm kind of overplaying video games at this point so i went and bought a camera Oh, wow. And I just kind of like upgraded from there, starting with like a kind of a prosumer little camera that allowed you to do some manual adjustments and had like a manual focus and stuff before I got into like a DSLR. But also back in 2005, 2006, like point and shoot cameras were really bad. Oh, yeah. And so like the image quality there was really bad. And then there weren't like cell, you didn't really have cell phones just popping off like decent quality pictures. Now it's like, you can get some pretty damn good quality stuff just with a cell phone. So. Yeah. 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 It's so funny that you mentioned that too. Cause I have weird memories of, um, you know, like in the very, very early two thousands, like 2003, 2002, like, using straight up disposable Kodak cameras, trying to like take pictures of the bearded dragons that I had, you know what I mean? And like going to get them developed and like, just being like, this is terrible. This doesn't look like what I wanted at all. (laughs) I I went back and and found some, cause I had this, like, I don't know what it was like a four megapixel, like hundred dollar Samsung. And I look back at some of those pictures and that's okay. Picture. Dude, I, it, it looks like somebody <laughs> took it in like a 1998 version of Photoshop and then tried to make it into like a, you know, like artistic style. Like, uh, I don't know mm-hmm. what the, uh, what's the art where they do like a bunch of tiny little dots. Oh yeah. Pointillism. Yeah. 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 So it looked like, it looked like that. But then if you were to like smudge it in Photoshop, it was so <laughs> awful. Oh my God. <laughs> Start somewhere. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's gotten a little better since then, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With the steps of a turtle, I guess. That's always what it always feels like just to, to some. Yeah, degree. it's funny. I mean, there's only a few things that really go into getting a, a quality photo, but learning how to put them all together for whatever it is you're specifically doing and learning all the you know, the priorities for what you're trying to do, you know, sure. is, is what makes it difficult. So, but if you take it one step at a time and learn what what each feature is and how to do it, mm-hmm. you yeah. know. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. not as difficult, I think, as what most people make it out to be, but it's definitely a a, a long learning curve to to do it well consistently. Yeah, yeah I mean, for sure. 
and it's obviously so intimidating. I think, I think sometimes people look at, and I understand why, right. I mean, you, you pick up like a fancy DSLR and you start learning about like F-stop and, you know, like exposure and lighting camera raw. You're just like, what, what, I, don't, yeah. what? I know what? just the trying to swap lenses and like, e- yeah. even with, if somebody else, like I know my Canon stuff, you know, like the back of my hand, but somebody hands me a Nikon or a Sony. I'm like, uh, it stalls, yeah. me, stalls me for a couple minutes until I just figure out where everything's at, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I so- recently switched from a, I had like a, just like an old Canon rebel that was like my main, you know, DSLR for a really yeah, long that's time. What I started with just like, yeah, yeah, the entry level thing, you know, that everyone starts with. And then I recently got like a Sony mirrorless and it, I, I'm like, I'm so intimidated by it because I'm still, I'm just so used to the Canon still. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah. I can't, even though it's like objectively a much nicer camera that I have now, um, I I can't get the quality of photos I was getting, you know, as with the consistently consistency it, as I had for my Rebel. It just goes to prove though, like I tell a lot of people, like unless you're using like some super crappy camera, like learn how to use what you've got. Yeah. And then you should have a reason for why you upgrade. You know, yeah. I can still take excellent photos of the 20 year old camera, but my keep rate and certainly like mm-hmm. the ability to crop in with higher megapixels or just, yep. you know, better autofocus is going to give me a, a higher, a higher hit rate for what's a keeper. Oh yeah. yeah. Maybe spend less time screwing around trying to get a quality shot or whatever, but yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. So and what it was like, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was, well, I was just curious. I mean, since we're talking photography, I'm curious, like you, you talk about this learning curve, like how did you start to learn? Did, was it just, trial and error or did you like pursue so I, a book I started, class? I, I started with what what I, I call like a prosumer so it's it's not like a tiny little point and shoot it has like mm-hmm. a built-in zoom it allows you mm-hmm. to like take macro photos where you can manually like adjust the focus and then you can adjust aperture and shutter speed and white balance and so my brother-in-law at the time was taking a or I think had taken a photography class at the University of Iowa um and so he just kind of taught me okay here's how you adjust aperture shutter speed white balance iso i mean really that's all you're looking at for the most part to like do something decent and so it's like you just pick one thing you learn what that one thing does and how to adjust it and then you just learn how all of them kind of work together and then you learn how to prioritize that like okay well do i have flash or not you know it's going to make a big difference in whether you know, I'm getting the proper exposure and stuff. And then I just kind of add pieces in. So I started with that camera and actually was able to get pretty good results. Even with that, it's got a little hot shoe on it. So you can put a hot shoe flash on it and bank it into like a piece of uh cardstock or whatever. Um, and you could take some pretty, pretty solid photos with even, you know, now you probably get the camera for 50 bucks, Yeah, you know? Um, and then I went into a rebel. Uh, I think my first one was a rebel X XT. And then yep. you got some tips from Randy May too, didn't you? Yeah, I got some tips from a, a guy named Randy May. He was a Cresta Gecko breeder back in the day that did some really high quality photos and kind of recommended um, some Alien B Studio flashes for me um, just so I could get like consistent, you know, results. Cause I, I really like doing macro photography and trying to do that inside is pretty much impossible without uh, using mm-hmm. flash. Right. Um, yeah. So he made some recommendations and then, yeah, it was just trial and error. I mean, I never, I didn't do any photography with film. So coming into it with digital is really nice for like just taking pictures and learning, learning what works and what doesn't work. And I tell people all the time, like, and it goes the same way with, with uh, herpetology too. Like you try new stuff 
and it, it doesn't always work out, but either way, it's a learning experience, right? Like you right. learn, okay, well, yeah. this works or this doesn't work. And then you roll it into the next thing. And almost every single time, I mean, I, I still, I still try new stuff almost every single time I, I take the camera out. And sometimes it's a waste of time and it doesn't work and it's not any better, but I, I at least know whether it helps or not. And, uh, you know, I, I, I still talk to Cresta gecko breeders <laughs> that I know have been keeping stuff as long as we have about how to keep hatchlings. It doesn't yeah. mean we don't know what we're doing, but it's like we take the most basic thing and we break it down and then we rebuild it and see if there's a better way to do it, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just that yeah, process yeah. of continual refinement, you know, that I feel like is part of what makes it rewarding. It's, yeah. it's pretty it's pretty funny to think, though, like if somebody were just come into this conversation with, say, me and a buddy or somebody that I've never met before and we're having conversations about how you set up a hatchling crested gecko or whatever mm-hmm. species it may be, they'd be like, who is this guy? Like, he doesn't know what he's, what he's talking about, but really, really, like I said, it's, it's trying to do a better job of what we know works, but might be able to do it just a little bit better, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Totally. And, and there's, there's definitely something to be said for um, being willing to re-examine things that you might otherwise take for granted, you know, because yeah. there, it's, there's something, there's always something you can change. I mean, the, the way, the way I, I keep like a group of hatchling euros is totally different than it it was five, six years ago. And and I mean it might not look that way to the to the sort of like the observing eye, but to me it's like a it's like a totally different ballgame, you know? And and you know, depending depending on the scale that you're doing it at, depending on the 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 sort of goals that you have in rearing something, um, all of those things will will uh influence what like the kind of choices you make in in setting and setting things up i mean i love the i love hearing that i love hearing like the the desire to um kind of regularly like try to crank up the volume on your game it's awesome it's that, that's a that's a super cool thing to hear about um funny anecdote mentioning about, about you mentioned uh, like film camera never never having shot with film uh, the, the photography class I took in college, my, my professor, Gary Emrich, um, he made us, it was, it was, a the, the whole first half of the semester was shooting with film. And so yeah. he was, and we, I had like this old Pentax camera that you could drive a nail with, you know what I mean? Like this big mm-hmm. of a thing and God damn it. The number of images I completely ruined because I didn't spin the, I wasn't able to like, like spin the film into the reel to put it in the developer. Like, and I messed it up and I would just fuse them all, all the negatives together. Oh, no. and I'm like, God damn it. It's like, <laughs> it's funny now. Cause like, I feel like I could work backwards obviously into film. Cause I actually understand what everything does. Right. But trying to, trying to start there and then work into digital would be, Oh, I mean, I would understand the process. Certainly I get it, but now I don't think there's any point in doing that. It's just a waste of, it's just a waste of, it's just a waste of film. Yeah. 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 A huge material waste and like being in a dark room and like using all of the, all of like the, the chemicals, like the, you know, the developer and the stop and all this, all these fluids and like, you're sitting yeah. there in low light. And it's super weird. I mean, it was, it, it was, admittedly, it was very cool. Like at the time, yeah. I, I felt highly artistic. I was like, I am, <laughs> I am really at the top here. You know, like that was also like oh two oh three, even into like oh five oh six was like, yeah, like wedding photographers and stuff weren't even really 
touching into digital until like or yeah into like digital until like oh five oh six oh yeah and, and like newer yeah, yeah i yeah. go back and like look at our wedding photos i'm like these are freaking terrible <laughs> we, paid, we paid money for this like <laughs> brian susan take 10 year anniversary photos for us yeah. those are much better yeah those are nice <laughs> yeah he's, he's he's got he's got some skills <laughs> yeah that dude's the man that dude is great so so i'd like to ask a couple a little bit more about um sort of like the development of, 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 uh, of the work you guys do. Um, and I'm a little bit uh, struggling for words in terms of exactly how to ask this question, but like, was it, was it a, a very gradual linear progression for you or were, were there moments where, you know, there was this like realization, like, oh, I like, it's time for us to really step up our game. And did you, did you guys set out with a goal to reach a specific point in terms of your, like the infrastructure that you guys are seated in front of behind you? Or is it something that happened as out of necessity? I mean, I'm, I'm genuinely curious about some of the, 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 the details behind how the development process was for, for, for you guys. Well, it started with just a bunch of random species we were keeping with for fun. Um, yeah. And we kept like a lot of Europlatus and most of the new Caledonian, you know, Rachidactylus. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was in very limited numbers of like frilled dragons and just stuff like that. And then it kind of got to a point where it was like, you got 50 different random styles of cages right? That's a huge pain in the ass to work with when you're like, Mm -hmm. this cage opens on the top, this cage opens on the front, this cage, the door flips up or whatever. And so we decided that we just really kind of wanted to streamline stuff. I used to make like custom cages and stuff too, or modify aquariums that have like sliding glass front doors or whatever. And it's just Mm -hmm. such a pain in the butt after a while to like go through that stuff. So we, we started kind of streamlining the cages and stuff. What, like 2014? Yeah, species too, like just trying to keep more of like similar temperature and habitat just to streamline things even more. But yeah, I, but I feel like it was pretty gradual too. Yeah. <clears throat> it's like a natural as, as far as as far as like production of animals and like turning it into a business, that was like it's basically been a full-time business for both of us for probably six years. Oh wow. Well, we didn't actually we didn't actually maybe even i mean probably could have done it 10 years ago mm-hmm. um so we were basically working both full time plus doing close to the same number of animals as what we're doing now up until a couple of years ago and then we start i like i started dropping hours at work or i'd like just take do a half day or whatever and my my job was pretty flexible um so i i kind of like Cut half a day here, and then it's like, all right, I'm cutting to just half days only, and then it's like, all right, what? Like doing half days, honestly, I got just as much done doing like, uh, I don't know, like a half day as if I just done a full day of work. Because by the time mm-hmm. I'd get home and actually get working on stuff and eat lunch and whatever, it's like I just didn't feel like I was really gaining much by doing mm-hmm. my half days. So I just said, you know, I'm kind of done with it. Uh, what January of 2022. Oh, wow. And then, and then Sarah was November of 23 that she went full time with this stuff. So 22. Oh, 22. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, wow. 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 That's very cool. But in order to do so, I mean, we never relied on the income from the animals. That was always just like, pay the, like we already had all the 
house payments and everything paid. It was just kind of fun money and to like mm-hmm. travel. Um, but we wanted to invest back into like the caging or misting system or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, Right. All of back into the animals. So yeah, we decided though, that like at a certain point, if we've got enough money set aside to like do house payments for a couple of years and that's, you're never going to have a better time to, to kind of jump ship than when you're set for a year or two for everything. Right. Yeah. To have that cushion and not feel like you're scrambling to, to really make ends meet. And I, I think that would be super hard to do in this, uh, business. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it can be tricky. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> That's crazy. Really cool though. I mean, it it's um, it's also I also think it's like it's pretty remarkable that it you guys are a, like a spousal team with this. You know, I I I feel like so many of the people that we speak to, it, you know, with the rare exception, obviously, we've had you know like there uh, we've had a handful of. Of, of couples or people who's, who, you know, who both, you know, yeah, it's not um, like Frank, Frank Payne got his wife yeah. in helping out. I just watched that one. And mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah, then, so, I mean, there's definitely people that do it, but um, I, I don't know how, I mean, in some aspects, like having, not having your, your partner or spouse, like they're uh, maybe making some decisions harder. Like she wants to keep something. I just want to sell it or <laughs> I want to get something. And she says, we don't can't get any more animals. I guess having like your own separation to kind of do what you want yeah. is maybe beneficial, but certainly more beneficial to have, you know, twice as much help doing everything. I mean, mm-hmm. honestly, it takes us even combined like three to four days just to update availability by the time oh, we do wow. like photography, get it on the website, get it on morph market. It can be a three to five day process, almost full time. Fascinating. Wow. Well, so this, yeah. this is a, I, I was actually hoping we could talk about this and I hope you guys don't mind my asking, but like, can you elaborate on, on like, how, how do you guys divide up the, the work? I mean, do you guys, it like, do you guys have preferences about what you prefer to do and what you prefer not to do? And, you know, like, does, do you, does one person sort of get, like purview over like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to be the one taking the available photos because I don't like the way yours turn out. Or, I mean, you know, I don't, I, don't, I mean, <laughs> I, I imagine let him it, do the photography because I don't want to, <laughs> 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 he is better at it, but okay. I, I usually do all like the entry into like the spreadsheets and okay. get the animals deli cupped and like prepared. So that we, we have a good like assembly line. We, okay. we oh, deli cup everything like for 15 to 60 minutes or so before we photograph uh, photograph it so that it can fire up, you know, sure. and color mm-hmm. up. And so she'll be deli cupping, she'll be entering stuff into like a spreadsheet and I'll be grabbing them and I'm shooting mm-hmm. them while she's just moving like two to three rows of, of animals. who have always got like a queue of 20 to 30 cages that are ready to go. And then I'm just going through them and popping the photos and then they're all just kind of in order already on the spreadsheet. So. Wow. That's really cool. Um, Wow. And, and you know, just tag team the post-processing and uploading onto the website and everything. Excellent. Wow. Yeah. And it, but as far the- as like cleaning cages and feeding and stuff, it's like, we basically just end up figuring out an area that works. Like I'm freaking slow at everything I do. <laughs> like it doesn't matter what it is. Like I take my time and I'm super slow at it. So like to feed uh 400 bins, you know, mm-hmm. would take me, quite some time. Yeah. So I'll take a section of uh, 60 and then I'll do all the adults and I'll look for eggs and I'll go through and I'll kind of like, I'll take my dear sweet damn time doing that stuff. And then uh-huh. it takes her the same amount of time to feed, you know, 10 times as many cages as what I'm doing. But since I'm freaking slow at it, 
it makes sense that, okay, I'm going to pull these apart and I'm going to look for eggs in the cages and stuff like mm-hmm. that while I'm going, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Extremely interesting. Well, were there, were there any, um, like in getting up to this point, were there people who um, either or both of you looked to um, as sort of examples in herpetoculture that you, you know, you say you admired, you looked up to, and then, and then sort of secondarily, um, were there any kind of influences? Do you guys ha- look at, look to any people sort of outside herpetoculture for, for influence in what you do? Well, I first realized that you could have a business breeding reptiles when I was in fifth or sixth grade. My uh, aunt and uncle's neighbor had snakes in his basement and I got invited over to help clean cages one day. And then I got a bearded dragon in return for helping clean cages. So that was kind of an eye opener for me. I was like, okay. I mean, I guess like this guy wasn't like doing it as a living, but he had enough to, you know, make some money doing corn snakes and bearded dragons and stuff. Um, And then after that, uh, yeah, we met Alan Rapashi at a Tinley Park show, I think in 2005. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't know who he was and he didn't have a name ban or anything like that. And I was looking through his animals. I was like, man, you got some really nice, some really nice stuff. And he was like, he was like, yeah, what, he's like, what do you got? And I was showing him some pictures and stuff. He's like, oh, yeah, these are really nice. And I just bought, at the time, the most expensive Cresta Gecko I'd ever bought. I think it was like 280, 285 bucks. Yeah. He was like, oh, that's really nice. And he's like, where'd you get it from? And uh, I told him, he's like, oh, yeah, it probably came from me. Because he knew, <laughs> he knew who it was. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, so where, where'd you get some other stuff from? And so I was like, told him some places. And I was like, I got some other animals, I think you know, from so-and-so, but I think they came from Alan Rapashi and I'm telling this to him to his face. And he was like, yeah. Oh, hi, I'm Alan Rapashi. And I was like, Oh, hi. <laughs> I've done that. I've done that. exact. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I, uh, I was on his forum at the time and I was kind of like a know-it-all newbie have to post on everything kind of person, you know? Yeah. And he was able to kind of like, reroute me and harness me into actually being helpful instead of like thinking I'm being helpful, but just being overbearing. Interesting. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There's, there's always, there's always the people that are there doing that kind of stuff. So I was that guy for a while. And so I helped him uh, just organize some pages and stuff on his forum. And then uh, like at the time uh, I was doing some photography and Sarah was a vet, Sarah was a vet tech. Mm-hmm. And so he actually flew Sarah and I out to his place to microchip his Lichianus collection. Whoa. Wow. And so we microchipped over a couple of days, like a couple hundred Lichianus and like entered them into an Excel spreadsheet. So you could scan them, punch the number in, and it would take you to photos and all the information on the animals. Wow. It was pretty freaking sweet. Um, we were microchipping geckos down to what, like 10 grams, yeah. 10 grams, I think. Wow. Holy moly. That's yeah. amazing. But it was pretty cool because he had a bunch of, you know, irreplaceable, you know, wild caught animals that if like multiple get out and get mixed up by his employees, then they're kind of like, okay, I don't know for sure what this is. So you, you get it to a point where you can scan an animal, you know, exactly what it is, even if it's been out for a month and three or four other animals have gotten out in the same time frame. Wow. Amazing. That's that's some next level systemization. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a whole other level. <laughs> well, Alan, Alan is very business mind oriented and also mm-hmm. really likes to kind of see what he can do with some of that stuff. So what he wanted to do was like, 
have us travel to like some of the bigger reptile shows around the country and microchip other people's animals. Wow. Um, so then you could have like a database of like, okay, these animals came from so-and-so or every animal that Alan and Philippe sell is microchipped and has all the information right there. The mm-hmm. biggest issue with that is most people can't just bring animals into a reptile show. <laughs> you know, he was going to pay 10 or 15, you know, only charge like 10 or 15 bucks to have it chipped and have it punched in. And then it's all kind of recorded or whatever. And then yeah. the other issue is most people aren't going to invest uh, four or $500 into the required equipment to be able to mi- scan a microchip. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 That's true. It was a cool idea though. Yeah. Yeah. yeah definitely. Cool. I mean, it, yeah. you know, we, uh, we had him on, on the show as well. And, I'm always struck by people who are able to take like a different kind of or like a, like a, maybe like a relatively unique orientation towards the world and apply it to a specific endeavor. You know, I mean, I, that's a, that's a really, really innovative um, and, and uh, you know, intellectual approach to something that like, I don't know a lot of people who, approach herpeticulture that way you know i mean yeah. surely uh, not trying to throw any throw anybody under the bus they're out there right there's lots of people doing interesting things but when you meet someone who's you know taking taking something and, and applying a system like that to their entire collection not only does it seem brilliant in terms of problem solving capacity but it's also like wow that's actually really cool i never would have thought to do that myself how intriguing, you know? It, yeah, and then and then he hires a couple of uh, early twenty-year-olds that have some vet tech experience <laughs> and some photography experience for the cost of plane tickets and a yeah. a vacation to California probably only cost him a total go. of a few thousand bucks with all the chip and everything, and then have to pay somebody yeah. else to do it all for him. Yeah, yeah. yeah there you go. Yeah, he's yeah. a smart guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is. He's a brilliant dude. Very brilliant. Uh, but then he ended up flying us out there a couple more times for just photography stuff and whatever. Um, we helped him out at a couple of shows and stuff out there. But other than that, it's just, um, you know, other friends that we've met along the way that are doing similar things or, um, you know, seeing, seeing who's doing what on the, on the, the forums and pages and stuff that we look up to and try to try to mimic what they're doing or make it work for us in a different but similar way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were were there are there are there people or concepts or anything outside of herpeticulture that you have a tendency to like refer back to? Like one just as an example for me, I'm, I'm like almost always relating everything to Brazilian jiu-jitsu because that's the mm-hmm. other thing that I do. And it's sometimes it's, I'm sure it's kind of annoying for people, you know. They're like, "God damn, dude, this guy's talking about jiu-jitsu again." You know, and, which I get it. It's fine. It's a it's a problem, but I don't know are there are there you know, are there are is there is there, any, is there anything like that for 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 you two? So, for me, uh I would say I was a mechanic for 18 plus years. And so I like to be able to take stuff apart. And ideally, when I put it together, I don't want to have to take it apart again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so I want to make sure it's done right the first time. Uh, but if I do have to fix something, I want to be able to take it apart. So this this room that we're in now is now when I when I try to do something, I run it through my mind three or four times before I put a freaking screw into anything. Right. I'm like, well, what am I going to take this apart in six months? What's going to suck about that? Right. I feel like like his dad, he he takes a lot after his dad. 
who passed uh-huh. away a few years ago now, but uh-huh. um, he actually helped us build this room. But I see so much of like his dad's tendencies and his like OCD. Yes, <laughs> well that, but yeah, just making sure things are done right. You know, what uh-huh. was the saying? He always had to do it. Uh, I, I can't remember. But anyway, that's that's what it reminds me of. Do it right the I first see. time. You don't have to do it again. Yeah, basically <laughs> something like that. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, so basically like. I, I kind of just all the almost all the cages in here are mounted like cabinets on the walls with like mm-hmm. a four with like a four inch gap. So I can run my arm corner of the wall, the corner of the wall and nothing's in the way. And I can put lights in there. If a gecko gets out there, everything's up four inches off the ground. It can run straight to the wall and it's got nowhere to go. Right. So um, it keeps in here in the Midwest, it, it gets pretty cold. I mean, there's some sections of the floor in here in the winter that get 55, 60 degrees. Oh yeah. Um, and so I've got everything up off the ground. I've got almost everything, um, uh, with herp stats with 20 watt puck lights that are dimmable and temperature controlled by the lights, or, uh, almost all of the perimeter walls are lined with heat tape on every single bin. Um, wow. so it's, it's pretty well temperature controlled. We've got, a an ERV and energy recovery ventilation unit. Um, and the reason for that is because I can't open the windows where there's no more windows in here. I had to cover them all up with the uh, cages, but uh-huh. uh, when, you, when, you, when you do have windows, you can't open them from November to March, Yeah, you know, or longer. So it, it gets pretty stagnant. So I installed a, a unit that has a separate incoming and outgoing air control and so wow. I can crank, I can crank one up and have the other one turned down or vice versa. And I can run them for, you know, say one of them on high and one of them low and have them both only cycle for say 10 minutes an hour or mm-hmm. 60 minutes an hour. So in the winter, I have it dialed back to maybe doing like a full air exchange, like twice a day in here. Um, but when it's nice out, I have that thing cranking all the time. And, and it's got like a basically equivalent to like a radiator or an intercooler on a car. So any air mm-hmm. that's coming in, it's temperature matched to about 70% of whatever air is going out. So it's not wasting hot or cold air. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, and then it filters it too. So I have the the fresh air right at the front door when you walk in. So it's not like, whoa. And then yeah. I have the, and then I have the exhaust air popped out, like the furthest point away from the entrance. Um, mm-hmm. So those are separate. And then you can, you can split off vents and run different vents and stuff off it too, but I'm just running the two. Wow. Man, that sounds Amazing. awesome. I am beyond jealous of that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a pretty slick setup. And I mean, that, you know, it comes from like, okay, I have like a cockroach closet at the old place. And we put a bathroom exhaust fan in there. It's like, all right, <laughs> yeah. well, like, that's fine. And it's on a light switch. Okay, yeah. well, how frequently are you going to run that? If you run it all the time, that that closet's 55 degrees in the winter. Yeah, you can't have that. So you just kind of run it when you think about it or it gets freaking nasty in there. But being able to have this thing just basically run at whatever levels that I want it at is pretty is pretty slick. So this time of year, I have it cranked down pretty low because it's starting to get about freezing at night. But it's still like I said, it still does a full like air exchange about twice a day right now. So at least it's keeping some airflow going. Yeah. amazing. Wow, man, that's really cool. Extremely cool. With that difference with the airflow, have you noticed any difference with your animals? Like any any positive, obvious benefits to that um, or, or anything like that? I think it's hard to gauge because it's like, I, don't, I mean, any airflow is good. You know, right. in my opinion, assuming you're not like drying a cage out so bad that it like 
you know, zaps the humidity and desiccates an animal. But um, it's kind of hard to gauge because the fresh air is like all the way on one side and the, the yeah. exhaust air is like way off in another end. So there's still like some kind of stagnant parts of the room. We do run a couple other just like small little swivel fans kind of strategically <laughs> placed and like little uh, computer fans and stuff placed here and there just to like take air out of one corner that's not nearby and you and kind of push it into the middle of the room to kind of create a more positive airflow. Right. But we definitely still have some areas that are more stagnant than others. Um, I think overall it's beneficial. I just, I can't say for sure, you know, to what yeah. degree. Yeah, totally. Wow. And I'm curious about like, so this, like what iteration of your, your reptile room are we at now? Um, we started, we started in a mobile home with, cages in the hallway our bedroom and like another bedroom <laughs> and then we bought a house and we basically purpose-built that one kind of similar to this um mm-hmm. but that was more just like okay we've got a shitload of outlets everywhere you know because that's fantastic yeah. and then it's got a few dedicated breakers and stuff like that but then it's like build it up to having some of these cages here like on mm-hmm. islands that are mobile and a missing system and you kind of work through it but this is probably we had a temp room here while we were building this one because it yeah. took us about two years to finish this room because uh, Sarah and my dad and I did everything here um, wow. while we were keeping everything upstairs or at our old house. So we kept everything at our old house for like two or three months before we moved it to the new place, which was kind of nice not having to like try to have everything ready to go and show the house, you know, oh, with yeah. hundreds oh, of yeah. animals and stuff. There <laughs> seems like it would be super stressful and kind of a nightmare. So it also made it so we could just kind of fix that place up and and just rent it also instead of like having to, having to dump it. But I'd say this more time making this like exactly what we wanted based off of everything we learned from the other rooms for sure. Previous places, you know, that we didn't like. So yeah, this is pretty, I mean, I don't know how much else we could really make it better. It's so hard to my next question is like what what is what remains, you know, because like it seems like that from my perspective outside looking in, like wow, this is um this so is I've got special. a few I've got a few things, uh like maybe figure out how to freaking keep the spiders down would be a good uh-huh. one. Um that's a freaking nightmare. And then we had we I figured out how to get like another 90 shoebox bins in here. But having everything mounted to the wall looks great and functionally is fantastic, but it makes it an absolute nightmare when you have to move anything. Mm-hmm. Because I have like brackets on the walls that I screw everything into. And yep. so to basically to fit what I wanted to, I had to like juggle other racks and stuff around. And I had to move like three separate sections of cages that were all in one spot and juggle them around to get that in and took us like, this is, of course, between feeding and doing everything else we have to do. It took us like five days just to uh-huh. like juggle the stuff around and actually get it remounted. Plus, yeah. when I mount the stuff, it's like the OCD kicks in. Like we spent I shim, hours. I shim please. everything to get it so uh-huh. it's like flush on the front. <laughs> yeah, and you don't realize huh. how much mudding and taping, like drywall and stuff, adds like little waves and shit. In the oh drywall. yeah. Yeah, and so sure. trying to trying to shim that with like foam and old flooring tiles and whatever you've got to like shim it out and make it flat on the front is a real pain. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm always I'm always working with like the misting system, just trying to get that perfectly dialed in and lighting stuff, and you know, not something specifically in the room, but maybe add solar so that all of the reptile stuff mm-hmm. is offset by 
Mm-hmm. Cost effect, cost wise, for me to add solar is not really worth it. Mm-hmm. As far as like breaking even or making you know some kind of value on it, but just to know in my mind that it's a, a wash on the reptile yeah. side of things is worth the cost for me. Oh yeah, um, yeah. So we'll be we'll be looking into that a bit more. I've got estimates and stuff. I just haven't pulled it off yet. And then mm-hmm. even just stuff like we clean every single food bowl and water bowl we use here. So we're using, and this goes back to like some of the stuff you guys have talked about, which is like, you know, what kind of impact can you have, whether it's, it's good or bad as far as like, uh, keeping the business green or are you negatively Mm -hmm. affecting potentially, you know, local wildlife here or just dumping Mm -hmm. stuff in the landfill. So, uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, new Caledonian keepers use egg flats just for like stuff for animals to climb on and hide in the bins. Right. Um, we've completely eliminated all of that. Um, and we, I just calculated it. Uh, I can't remember for sure right off the top of my head, but we just now swapped out the three quarter ounce, uh, portion cups, uh, a couple months ago that we'd been using since like the middle of 2020. Wow. And that's, so that's washing them nonstop. And all of a sudden they started getting like little pinholes and stuff in them, but I was able to clean them and recycle them. And I counted and weighed those. And it was like, I think I calculated out to be like three or 400 pounds of plastic wow. and like, a, and like a couple hundred thousand cups. Well, we ultimately were able to, uh, re- like recycle. And before that we were just pitching them every single feeding. Ooh. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Oh man. Yeah. So even, even just doing stuff like that. Yeah. It's a little bit of a pain. It's, it's a little more work certainly than just chucking the plastic cups right in the trash, but makes me feel a lot better and oh, yeah. I don't have the, I don't have the, the expense of those, you know, portion cups or anything else. So we've just yeah. figured out how to, how to effectively clean them efficiently. We actually use our clothes washer uh, and wow. we just throw them straight into laundry bags in five gallon buckets and uh-huh. we just run them we through the like clothes washer. You rinse on them and then throw them, like, yeah. Yeah. Wow. It works pretty wow. well. Wow, works out amazing. good. You, you'd think it would just beat the snot out of those cups. Yeah, I was um, gonna say I would expect it to just yeah. destroy them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's. I, I mean, I turn the spin cycle down lower, and then we run them for like basically the maximum amount of time that you can run. Mm-hmm. And I don't let I don't run like super hot water in there because that makes them break down. And then yeah. you can't do like a full laundry bag because that's like a lot of weight. Yeah, you know, right, get right. slammed around. So I'll break like one day's worth of cups down into like two or three bags. So it's uh-huh. two or three things tumbling around instead of one giant one getting slammed. Yeah. And that makes them last quite a bit longer too. So yeah. yeah, but yeah. One, one of my buddies does the same thing and he's got quite a few more animals than we do. So it, it works. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And so, so like, cool. What, what, what did you um, end up replacing some of those things with? Right. So instead of like, so like you know, the egg flats, yeah. Um, have you seen the like the heavier duty like plastic mesh that some of like the arboreal uh snake keepers use? And they just like put it in like an arch or like a little grid in yeah. the cage just for the snakes to climb on. We're yeah. just yeah. using that. And nice. then nice. um and then we've just got some artificial plants that we clean. And then I do uh run like a small square deli cup with like a little sphagnum for like a humid hide in the cages. Yeah. yeah, this is like a pretty basic like hatchling setup. So you've got your oh nice arch, nice. you've got your little arch piece, fake plant, piece yeah. of bark, and then a little uh, square cup with sphagnum moss in it, 
yeah. and then there's a little uh powerade cap for water yeah. and then uh a little food bowl in there but it's awesome we move them up to like a bark substrate after a while um mm-hmm. but i mean honestly even getting rid of the egg flats because those things mold pretty bad right and yeah. they're, freak- they're freaking just i just hate it plus some of those things are freaking nasty like you don't really yeah. know what's recycled in there or what yeah. those damn things were drug around in. I'm like, what? Yeah. Like, who knows what's in that shit? Like, yeah, it's yeah. obviously recycled paper, like paper pulp stuff. But it's like you don't what really else? know what's thrown in there, and you get like a whole stack of them, and some of them just smell like yeah, a, a little off. And I'm like, man, I don't know. I don't know what the hell is in all that. So we've got yeah. definitely like reduced shedding issues, and like. I don't have to swap them out just because the egg flats are moldy, you know, because nothing yeah. in there molds now. Um, yeah. So it works out pretty good. So our only consumables really obviously are like food. Um, but as far as like a waste product is paper towels. Um, yeah. We go through a fair amount of paper towels, um, sure. which sucks, but at least it's uh, biodegradable. And yeah, right. And the mulch, right. the mulch that we use, I just chuck out in the yard after it gets full of gecko crap. So yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, I have periodically used those, uh, egg flats as well. Um, just for the same reason with baby euros, you know, trying to add surface area, trying to add visual barriers without adding a ton of weight to the enclosure. But, um, with the baby euros, uh, so for example, let's say I would have like an egg flat and then I'd lay a square tile over the top of it. Right. And that would be a basking platform the euros would go underneath the tile into the egg flat and scratch and dig at the egg flat. And so then you'd pick up the, Oh, they would just shred it apart and it would be this dust. It's like, Uh it's like, I don't know if they eat it sometimes. I don't know. You know, I mean, obviously it doesn't seem to be hurting them necessarily, but it's not cool. You know, it's, it's, it's gross. It adds a bunch of uh, work to cleaning. I mean, it's, it, it's terrible. And at the end of the day, it's just like, forget it. I'm making everything stone. God damn it. You know? So. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, I mean, at least for us, we're talking for the most part, like sub 20 gram geckos, you know, they're, they're yeah. pretty, mm-hmm. they're pretty small. I would imagine, I don't know what, what's a, what an average uh, Euromastics hatching weight is, but it's probably about equivalent to a half to three quarter grown crested gecko, I would think. Yeah, I would say probably, yeah, about half. Yeah, they hatch, they can, they'll hatch any, depending on the species, you know, some species yeah. will hatch out at like five, six grams. Some of them will hatch out at 20 grams. It just depends on the, you yeah. know, on, on which one. But yeah, it's, but yes. Yeah, comparable it, to whatever an island locale Lichianus or GTA yeah. Lichianus is about equivalent. Yeah, 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 yeah totally. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it, that's really cool. I love hearing that kind of stuff. It's, it's so fun to, 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 to find ways of, you know, making improvements to, to, to what you do. And, um, I will tell you, it was a massive pain in the ass cutting like 400 pieces of that plastic mesh down. Oh yeah. Cause that, that shit, if you, if you don't like get it really nice is pretty sharp. Oh, oh yeah. You have to, you have to cut it like directly across the seam and like, yeah. man, I bet I had, total because i can only do like maybe a couple hours at a time before my hand is just like completely screwed yeah i bet i had i bet i had on and off of like five or six days of cutting that crap to get it to like fill all the cages it freaking sucked the other thing we noticed (laughs) was changing that um from the egg flat was a lot better feeding response to 
when we put live food in the cages because they can actually see it. The crickets don't hide or dubia don't hide. So we've had a lot better response that way too. Well, and I think that, granted, I think a lot of animals honestly are not a fan of hanging out on cork bark, but we all use it. I think they're all like, Mm -hmm. this is pokey and jabbing me and nothing's comfortable about this. We all still use it because it's readily available, but I don't think there's anything much worse than like an egg flash for something to try to lay on. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, Like a hatchling crested gecko just finds like a little nook in it. It's like, this is fine. But it's like when you're laying across like three or four of those freaking humps, it's got to, I think the things literally just cruise the cages trying to get out because there's no like, there's no good spot for them to just kind of hang out. So I think that there's sort of a a benefit there, at least on the plastic mesh, they can just kind of like drape over it and it helps utilize more of the vertical space in the, in these little shoe boxes too. So. Yeah, this is interesting. You know, I feel like this is a great example of something where, um, the, you're, the, the way you're describing these observations to me indicate a level of um, like attention, awareness, and responsiveness to to your own animals that I feel like is is just admirable beyond belief. You know, like I well, we appreciate that. It kind of comes, it it goes back to you know, even just like getting into like macro photography. Like our little motto for our business is seeing the details in life. And that's yeah. for like the macro side of it. But we also take that attention to detail into other stuff. So I'm not saying that we keep everything naturalistic. I'm not saying that we keep everything like pristine in here, but we do, we do try to at least maximize like how stuff is, is doing. And if we see something where, where we don't feel like something is doing the best, we try to figure out a way to make it better, you know, yeah. where we can, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's pretty cool. I mean, I think it's um sort of emblematic of the ways where I think if you if you're keeping one animal or a small number like 3 to 3 to 5 animals, you might notice some stuff if you're very observant and of course you're going to get to know those individual animals very well, but like having that sort of um you know that like all, you know, sort of almost global perspective over over such a large number of animals across many years and seasons is 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 like it's kind of an invaluable thing. It it, it it's weird the way um, there's almost like an exponential, uh, almost like an exponential rate of of um, of like learning that can happen. You know, like something that's been a little bit weird this year in particular uh, for me anyway, has been, um, you know, just as a, again, a random example, uromastics are so hard to pin down in terms of how they're going to inherit coloration and and pattern. They're so polymorphic. It's really, really hard. You know, there are some weird little bits of inheritance where you're like, oh, that one kind of looks just like his dad or, you know, whatever. But knowing how to predict it and what to expect out of it is like, it's just not going to happen. And um, I'm getting to a point now where all of a sudden I have uh, a handful of clutches from a handful of crosses that like never really happened. Even though I've had the animals for like 10 years, I've just never bred animal X to animal Y and being able to see like a distinct difference. It's like, Oh, Hey, neat. Like finally something Something weird. So, you know, I can finally point to this damn thing and be like, hey, look, there, this was like a totally different result. And I didn't expect it. It's so it's so freaking fun. Uh, yeah, this is a random example. I, I uh, you know, crested geckos are considered polymorphic. And right. up until 
you know, five, 10 years ago, you know, pe- people would say, okay, yeah, this is probably a recessive trade or, you know, whatever's going on here, but we don't really know for sure. And there's maybe a couple people that are really closely looking at it. But just as of like the last couple of years, like as a community, everybody's starting to like work on it and come together. And it's, it's pretty interesting now for me because um, I, I definitely know some of the traits and I, I learn how they work, but it's pretty interesting. Now I can go back and I can punch in like breeder codes and like our network yeah. access storage on the computers and be like, oh, I think this this animal, you know, has this recessive trait or whatever. I can go back and look at every hatchling since 2005 wow. from a particular pairing. So I can just punch in like the, the pairing code and it'll search the network access storage and it'll pull up, you know, 60 photos of whatever animals from a certain pairing. So it's pretty interesting to be able to go back. So what I would tell you there is like a lot of those traits probably are, you know, following some type of genetic, you know, uh, form, but yeah, it's hard when you have five or six things all interacting with each other to break them down. And like, you essentially have to work backwards or you have to kind of work sideways on a project where like a project you might want to only breed for color you almost have to like take a couple animals and breed them back to something else and yep. see what, what comes from that. So it's, it's kind of hard because if you're only wanting to move forward right. or like mm-hmm. us, for an example, like higher white colored, you know, or higher white collar Kahua or like the higher patterns is what's most desirable in the market for most people. Like I want to selectively breed towards that while you have some other trait pop up, um, say an animal from a pairing that you just, paired this year for the first time you've been breeding both parents right say for 10 years yeah and then you pair a new pairing but you've been breeding those animals for quite some time and one of the four offspring looks like it's melanistic right okay Mm -hmm. well it's like i'm breeding for color and pattern you know yeah 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 yeah. but like at the same time i want to know what's going on with this one right sometimes you just have to pick some of that stuff out and either start another project or whatever and see where it goes in my case in the past it's been like Oh, that's interesting. And then I just sell it because I don't want to start another project. I don't want to have another 10 or 20 or 50 animals two years down the road just to Mm -hmm. see how it plays out for the, for the numbers and stuff. So it's kind of hard because you have to kind of selective, selectively work with obviously what interests you most. There's probably, there's probably more to it than it just being polymorphic. Totally. But you look at, you look at other stuff like the satanic leaf tail geckos or, mossy leaf tail geckos and some of those things will throw five six seven different color variations or patterns and stuff and there's yeah. likely something going on there but who knows you might have three or four different recessive traits all at play there so you might not see anything and then all of a sudden it right. syncs up and pops out so yeah no you're totally right and i uh i sort of it's like laziness on my part to call it polymorphism you know it's because it's just i did it for 15 years like, so i can't i can't dude you know um, there's a, there's an added wrinkle with the euros too, because, um, you know, you might get females don't show much of their coloration until they're nearing maturity. Yeah. And, and then they might change from year three to year six. They might look like a very different animal because they have that mm-hmm. ontogenic color development. Right. Mm-hmm. And then your males, they might, they might not, you might not know you'd have to keep all the babies for three years you know, yeah. like an entire clutch for three years to know the way they're going to turn out because I've had individuals that spend two or three years of their life looking like they're going to be blue. And then in that fourth, fifth, sixth year, 
it it's like almost overnight they just there's all this yellow that comes in underneath that or uh, over the top of that blue and they turn into a green green form animal and you're like what the hell man i thought you were yeah, you know that's, that's and, tough. and it's it's really wild like just just uh like two two particular examples from this season that were totally mind-blowing to me is i had a female who is this really beautiful, like powdery blue, um, very little in the way of sort of secondary and tertiary coloration, just like a, you know, maybe a little bit of yellow oscillations, but very, very, you know, standard. I've been breeding her to the same male, um, for the last six years or so since I got her. And, um, it just so happened that that male, like I retired him and I, I moved him to a new home and so I, and he was a green form animal. So I've been breeding her to him for forever and getting sort of like these weird bicolor mixtures between the two of them. Well, this year I bred her to a, a totally like cobalt blue and orange male thinking, well, they're both blue. Maybe I'll get some like heightened, maybe they'll all be mostly blue offspring. Well, dude, a full 50% of the clutch are like these lemon headed green babies. You're like, what, what the hell, man? Like and, and it, she was never throwing that with the other male who was green, like mm-hmm. never yeah. once. And you're like, what the hell you freaking jerk, you know? <laughs> like, and, and, uh, but then, but then, interesting. but then you get the opposite where, um, I, I had the first ornate female in 15 years. She laid a double clutch for me. I've, I've never had that happen. I've never had an ornate lay more than once in a season. And the, she is a very, very vivid female individual, which is where like, you know, very high color for a female, lots of green, you know, lots of blue, just very colorful. And I've historically bred her with various males with some interesting results, but I, but I put her in with a, a, a very emerald green male just for, it was an accident. Like they were, they were just together for being um, in, in like an experiment in this huge pen, like an eight foot by five foot pen, like this big experimental pen. They may she lays her second clutch and good God, all of their babies. I mean, I don't want to, I've got the whole clutch of 13 of them and I don't want to sell a single one because they're all looking <laughs> so wild and so like clearly so vividly green already, yeah. like early on. And you're like, well, I, now I have to know, like, I can't keep, I can't sell any of you. I've got to hang on to all 13 of you somehow. <laughs> yeah. I don't have the space to do. And it's just like, it, it's a, it's a wild project. So, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I wish it, I, I want more info, damn it. Um, <laughs> yeah. At least in my case, it's a little easier to keep a couple hundred animals, but yeah. <laughs> uh, man, it's amazing. Yeah. If you, if you set aside a project and you know, we, in our case, like right now we're sitting on like a hundred animals from one project we were just trying to figure out. And it's like, man, you sit on that stuff for six or 12 months And it really, it really hoses you long-term because like we're set up for like X number of hatchlings per year and kind of like knowing how many we need to sell per month roughly before we're like loose bins on the floor. Yeah. yeah. And, and now we're 60 loose bins on the floor and a hundred eggs left to hatch, you know, and and shipping season's over. So it's like, (laughs) yeah, it can kind of, it can definitely come back to bite you in the ass for sure. Oh yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, wild considerations that we have to make to do this, uh, this wacky thing that we've all, uh, uh pitted ourselves into. Um, uh, this I is noticed pretty, it, yeah. it's kind of funny. Cause we, I mean, we, I mean, obviously we, we, we've alluded to this, but we haven't actually like fully unpacked it, but like 
what what does your collection consist of currently you know i mean obviously there's a new caledonian focus but within that like is there specific focus within new caledonia and do you have anything beyond that that you're working with yeah so it's probably 60 percent like of the new caledonian stuff i would say it's 60 percent crested geckos probably 30 percent uh no i'd probably say 50 percent crested 30 percent kahua and then a fairly equal breakdown of the remaining whatever percentage mm-hmm. that is left that i can't remember what percentage i said what you got 20 percent left 20 percent left. <laughs> left thank Math you is hard. yeah um <laughs> uh, probably an even breakdown of uh lychees sarasenorum and gargoyle geckos of the the remaining i don't keep any rough snouteds or the other uh, Niaro gecko yalu or uh the other that stuff so mm-hmm. but it's it's a lot of it's a lot of kahua and a lot of crested geckos and then we have just some other oddball stuff like a couple pairs of tokes um some australian leaf tail geckos um flying geckos flying geckos uh felstuma clemory uh nice. some little lygodactylus some goniosaurus Carphodactylus levis, which is like an oddball Australian species. What? Uh, oh, Eurydactylodes. Are, oh, so I guess some uh, new cow stuff. So we got two species of Eurydactylodes. You got some Teratoskinkus, which are the frog-eyed geckos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just telling Roy about that. I love those Kaiserlingi. Those are the most beautiful. Yeah, yeah dude. Oh, they're yeah. freaking They're freaking wild, dude. The, have you ever heard them like actually buzz the tail or anything? Yeah. Uh-huh. It's, pretty, it's pretty wild. Yes. Yeah. And the way they like the way they tiptoe tiptoe around and just like they're they're freaking wild, man. They're pretty inquisitive little geckos too. Yeah, they're super smart. They're really fun to watch. Uh, oh, I was cool. talking to Brian Susan a while back about um, I'd, I'd gotten an accidental order of like some superworms, which I never feed off to anything, and some of them had gotten out and turned into the beetles in the cage in the kahua cages and he was like yeah nothing eats those things i guess they just taste or smell terrible or something i was like all right i'll try it out so i chucked one of the uh superworm beetles in with the teratoskinkus and the one just comes ripping out of its hide and like touches its nose on it and then just like slow walked back and i was like damn <laughs> like this thing didn't even get its mouth on it it literally like came out at full speed and mm-hmm. just hit the brakes i'm like I- these things must smell just freaking terrible. I don't know. I mean, they don't smell like anything to me, but mm-hmm. uh, I tried it a couple of different times and every time the thing would just rip out of there and would not even put it in yeah. its mouth. Oh, yeah. It'll go wow. after anything else. The only so, interesting, the only things that I have that will eat like super worm beetles are my Egernia um, Cunningham eye. The Cunningham mm-hmm. interesting. Will, they'll eat them. They'll eat them up. They'll crunch them apart. But everything else I have, they ignore them. Uh, they, they, I smell, I smell them, frankly. Like when I pull, I mean, I never really like stuck it right up to my nose, but it didn't seem like it was terribly offensive, but I smell it on my hands when I, you know, like, it's like a pungent, yeah, like musky odor. Yeah. It's very specific. The superworm beetle odor. Nothing here. I have, I, I didn't have a whole lot of them, but I just tried the couple that I found in there and, uh, yeah, I didn't have great success with the uh, soldier fly larvae either myself, but interesting. Um, nothing really went after them too, with too much gusto. But the oh, we've got some green keeled lizards too. Cool, um, oh, cool. Those are pretty fun to watch because I remember, I remember 
thinking that those soldier flies were super annoying when they get out of the cages where they morphed. And I was like, damn, these things are annoying. And then I saw a buddy post that uh, his green keeled lizards love to hunt them. And so uh-huh. I found one somehow like six months after all of the other ones had like <laughs> died off or whatever. One just popped out. And so I chucked it in there and it was instant. The thing was just like straight on it and hit it first try, like midair. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I have it a, I have a, watching... a scalopris that's like that. A scalopris Yaravai. Literally, he'll literally, he'll, he'll catch them out of midair. Like I can throw them in on tongs and he'll hit the, he'll, he'll get them before they hit the ground. Yeah, Every time. And that's, and that's cool. <laughs> uh, it reminded me of watching the the little lizards like around the waterfalls and stuff in uh, South Africa. Uh, yeah, the platysaurus. Um, yeah, just diving and just catching the flies and stuff. I yeah, could watch that so shit cool. all day. I think sure. I think Sarah and I and our buddies like laid there for like three hours <laughs> shooting the photos and videos of those damn <laughs> things just diving all over the place. So good. Super, oh, super yeah. fun to watch. Well, so this might be a great time to, to kind of ask you about that, about some of the yeah, you know, yeah. field herping and some some excursions and sort of like what 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 are what are some of the highlights for you? What are the what are what are the things that motivate you about that? What do you learn from all of that? That's too much too much in one question, but you know. <laughs> well, our first field herping adventure out of country was in Aust- we went to Australia in twenty eleven. Yeah, two thousand eleven. We had no idea what we were doing, <laughs> but we had a great time. And it's, it's just kind of nice to go out and explore and kind of bring your passion with photography and like, being outdoors and just appreciation for nature in general together. Um, and we, we just enjoy going anywhere, everywhere. Seeing we, we don't always have a target species in mind, just kind of seeing whatever we can find, you know, taking photos of that. Um, yeah, you can. When you go somewhere like that, everything's new. So, Sure. I don't usually have a target species like she said, but you know, there's certain things that you're hoping to find. Um, but when we went to Australia, I think we we only stayed in a hotel like three nights, yeah, none of which we paid for. Um, <laughs> we kind of like stayed with a couple other people that we knew that were there for a night or two or whatever. Um, we went herping with Willie Henkel and Emmanuel Van Hagen for a few days when we were over there. Um, but other than that, it was just like literally camping on the side of the road and going to campgrounds to shower or whatever and seeing what we can find all over the place. So I guess there was the symposium. What's cruising around in the back of your <laughs> oh, I think it was a fly. It looked it, it went down it went down your microphone or something. But oh yeah, like yeah, no, like, there is a fly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. It looked like it was going along like the back of your cages. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> I've had a couple of fruit flies try to land on my nose. So <laughs> I feel you there. I'm like swatting <laughs> at stuff in here. Um, yeah. but yeah, Australia was a lot of fun. We found a bunch of cool stuff there. Um and then we've been we've done a couple trips with uh, Brian Susan. Uh he showed us around in Ecuador and yeah. Bolivia. And then um, we've done, we did South Africa with him and our friend Derek Dunlop. And then, uh, we've done some other stuff like Belize and Tanzania, Tanzania and, uh, Costa Rica and stuff. So we've gotten around a bit. Need yeah. to get out again. Substantially more than I've done. That's incredible. Oh man. Yeah. I Sounds mean, like so much impressive. Fun. Yeah. That's really cool. Is there any place that any of those places that, that stands out to you is like, just a, 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 if you're going to like, God, I would go back again in an instant. Like, let's go right now. Well, I, I mean, it depends on 
I mean, I would go back to pretty much all the places, but mm-hmm. as far as like ease of getting there, it's pretty hard to beat Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. I yeah, mean, you can get there pretty easy. You can get around pretty easy and you can find a whole lot of really cool stuff in not a whole lot of space. Uh, yeah. But anywhere like anywhere that's full on rainforest, like Amazon or anything like that is is pretty wild because like around it's here. It's overwhelming because like here we're just looking at the ground basically. Yeah, or, totally. You know, whatever we're looking for. And then there, like you're looking under leaf litter all the way to the tops of the trees for like yeah. every step you take. Yeah, like, and sideways and yeah. backwards and everything. It's like we we'll, we try to keep a relatively small group of like three to five people because um, mm-hmm. we all do photography too. So you definitely don't want like 10 photographers all like pestering an animal for an hour trying to get pictures of it. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, we'll have like the first person looking straight down you know, people checking the left and the right person in the back is turning around every 30 seconds to look for eye shine, wherever they, (laughs) you know, possibly pick it off or whatever. I will say that's probably something we've been getting a lot better at over like the last 10 years doing the photography stuff is like, and I would say probably almost every photographer has done it is like overshot an animal that you're like trying to manipulate Mm. and pose to a point where it's like not good for the animal. Um, and I think a lot of people ultimately end up getting a lot better about that and just trying to snap off a half a dozen picks or a dozen picks and, and kind of being done. But that's something we've been definitely getting a lot better at is like, everybody wants to try to get like that epic shot. Right. But yeah. you can't sit there and poke and prod something for 20 minutes. No, like, especially at night flash photography, man. Like yeah. that thing's going to go, it's either going to get, it's either going to stress out so bad it doesn't eat for a week. Yeah. You know, or it can't see for two days because you've been blasting it with flashes or, you know, whatever right. else. Yeah. So, right. Some stuff to certainly consider if you're going to go out and do some field herping and photography. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely try to get in situ shots now. Whereas, like, before, I'd be like, I got to catch it and I got to pose it for a picture. Like, mm-hmm. right. Snap a pick, move in, snap another pick. Cool. If you can catch it and pose it for a few photos, cool. Otherwise, like, you know, just let it go. So, yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. That's wild, man. Yeah, it's uh, all of the. Uh, no, go, go ahead, ahead Nope. <laughs> I was just going to ask of all of the um, of all of the herbs you have seen, you know, out out in the field. If if there's any like for each of you, if there's like one species or encounter that really stands out, it's just like a highlight. It's just a memorable one. I think a lot of, I think a lot of it would, I mean, obviously the animal, the animals are super cool, but sometimes the story that goes along with it. For sure. Yeah. In Ecuador was. Yeah. Like this, this night in Ecuador, in Ecuador, Sarah said this Mata Mata that we found in Mm -hmm. Ecuador is, it was just like a little one. So it's super pretty, but we found so much shit in like 20 or 30 minutes. Like it was freaking absolutely insane. It was like, Taking the photo of the, what's it called? The, uh, I'm Canine. terrible with Latin. I'm terrible with Latin names. The, the two line tree viper. It's a bothyopsis right? Yeah. Um, so we're like, we're shooting that. We're shooting some fertilances. We're shooting a tarantula eating a tree frog. We're shooting, uh, peepa peepas and Brian Sue sounds like, I got a mono mono over here, guys. And it's just like, <laughs> stacks of like super badass shit in like 30 minutes i mean just freaking unreal and so you have stuff like that or you have like 
you know, other, other stories that go along with finding super badass animals. I'm not going to get into the story that goes along with these ones, but like, uh, one night we got, uh, a horned adder, many horned adder and, uh, coral cobra and which are all freaking badass. But then like, you have some stories that go along with that, that I can tell you guys maybe off the air that are just, like, <laughs> crazy, <laughs> just, just ridiculous stuff. The, the frog night. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in the- Bolivia was crazy. Our guide thought we were nuts because we wanted to go out in the middle of the night to look for, you know, mm-hmm. frogs and stuff. And he just he he guided us to this spot we wanted to go to, and he just basically sat there while we spent probably hours, like three or four hours. hours. So the issue was it had rained like a freaking mofo for like four days, where we could uh-huh. barely hurt. Like it was raining so hard. And so we kind of get a little bit of a break and we hike out. I don't know. It's probably an hour from camp. Yeah. And, and we get to an area in the woods where it's all like ankle to knee deep water everywhere. Mm -hmm. But, and the guide was like, he's been working that area for like 14 or 15 years. He's like, I've only ever seen it like this, like twice. But Mm -hmm. what it did was it just made everything go freaking insane. So you'd have like three or four species of frogs all calling. And then like every 30 minutes, one species did drop out and a new one would start calling. And so you'd get like, you know, 10 or 12 species in like a couple hour time frame. You get the like the the horned frog. Yeah. Um, and then just like a ton of other different species of tree frogs. I got stung by a bullet ant on my finger <laughs> that night. <laughs> I was like, I, I spotted some eye shine like 10 feet up on like a little tree that was like this big around. So I pulled the tree down and I caught a clown tree frog. And mm-hmm. I pull it down. I've got all my camera gear hanging with like the twin flash and macro lenses and stuff. <laughs> and so I'm holding the tree frog and a freaking bullet ant just cruises right up my finger. And I felt the tip of my <laughs> hand. And I was like, I was like, I was like, oh, fuck. And the guys are like, what? And I was like, so instead of shaking it off, I tried to blow it off. Oh. I was like, I had all my camera gear. Like I didn't want to like hit it. Yeah. You know, so I try to blow it off. And this thing's like, you know, just like. <laughs> yeah. And so it, it just kind of like, I tried to blow it off and it kind of cocked its head like a praying mantis does when you, you know, uh-huh. like it just kind of like looked at me and then it just freaking drilled me right under the fingernail <gasps> oh. on, my, on my shutter finger, you know? Oh my God. And so. <laughs> under the fingernail? Yeah. Like right under it. That's actually when I, that's actually when I uh, yelled the curse word. And they're all like, they're all like, what? they're like, what happened? And I was like, I just got drilled by a freaking bullet ant. And so when I shook it off that time, I hit my camera and knocked my twin flash in the water. Oh no! I'm like, I'm like knee deep water, right? <laughs> so I knocked the thing in the water, and you know, it was it ended up being fine. But uh, you know, my finger throbbed for about six hours or so after that. And then we found oh, some yeah. freaking rad shit on the way back too. Mm-hmm. Like that night was pretty pretty wild. Yeah. What uh, what were the freaking giant bugs? The lantern, the huge the lantern, lantern flies, flies yeah. the really massive oh, ones. Yeah. Um, the guide said he'd only seen like one in like the fourteen or fifteen years that we're there, and we, that that he's been there. We found three in that trip, but I think oh, it's because wow. we're like we're really like focused and like he's not a herper; he's just guiding us around, you know. So right. him being able to like see what we're doing and going out to try to find and getting out at night because those guys never go out at night. You know, so he's just learning, yeah. learning kind of what we're doing and stuff. And it's pretty interesting doing, doing those kinds of things. So, yeah, but I mean, it's just so hard to pick a favorite. There's just so many mm-hmm. stories that go along with all the cool stuff that you're finding. And yeah, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. But I mean, even, even just seeing like a freaking bearded dragon in the wild. 
Oh yeah, you know, oh, yeah, or like Carpidaculus. Yeah, or the Carpidaculus levis, like in the wild, or like some species that you know are rare in captivity that you see, like the Australian leaf tail geckos, like the freaking massive ones. Finding those in the mm-hmm. wild is pretty unreal, you know. For sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, for we've me, it's... Some, we've had some great trips around the states too, like over in Borrego and um, oh yeah, down. You know, in Tucson yeah, area. Yeah, finding Gila's yeah. down in the Tucson area and stuff. There's lots of cool stuff to find here around here too. Well, not like around Iowa, but <laughs> per se, but in the US. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All of all of my herping has been done almost exclusively in the the, the southwest of the of the US. You know, mm-hmm. like certainly not a complaint by any stretch of the imagination. You can find it's incredible. It's one of the coolest places to be, but you know, uh <clears throat> Well, I mean, I didn't, I didn't really herp when I was, when I was in Costa Rica, cause I was there this year for my honeymoon with Rach and we didn't, we did like a little bit of like, what, what do they call it? Incidental herping where, where I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm like jacking around on the, on the hotel grounds and stuff like that. And then we get on the river and whatever and do some cool stuff, but it wasn't the same as like, it wasn't proper herping, you know? And so yeah. I'm, kind of, I'm a little jealous. Uh, uh, that, that sounds like, uh, a lot of cool stuff, but you, you really hit the nail on the head with like a lot of the story really kind of being what enriches the experience, you know, in some way, right. It's not just going and seeing something in particular. It's kind of, how did you see it? What happened before you saw it? What happened after and what was going on? And, you know, there's so much to it. Yeah. And, you know, there's part of the, the herpetoculture side of things that's kind of interesting to me is like, I know some people that only keep say, ball pythons right but they have basically zero interest or background knowledge of like even ball pythons in the wild and i'm not saying everybody needs to know exactly where everything comes from but you see it a lot with like you know ball pythons and crested geckos and leopard geckos and some of these some of these species that like are super cool and obviously we keep a ton of them too but where people just don't really ever get the appreciation for like the the actual wild side of that animal. And I think yeah, I just totally. kind of got into it with, with um, Philippe uh, and his episode a bit about that and like just morphs and breeding for morphs versus like wild type animals and stuff like that. I, we're kind of stuck in the middle of all realms of that topic. You know, mm-hmm. we, we breed for morphs of some stuff for sure. And I find it very interesting, but like I could absolutely not just keep everything in shoe boxes. Like I'd feel horrible yeah. about it. I have like a moral issue personally with that. Like I have mm-hmm. some stuff like some of the breeders and like some really, you know, pretty solid cages for what are about as m- maximum as we can deck them out when we have to tear them apart all the time looking for eggs. You yeah. know, like I, I, I don't want to go digging through a hundred cages that are like fully decked out and planted, but I also right, need like some visual appeal, right? Like I need some cork, yeah. I need the animals to, you know, have cool places to hide and stuff and and to be able to actually go out to me and find something in the wild is like, is the, the actual tip top of like my favorite thing to do for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. Especially, especially when you have a friend that's been like looking for something for two or three days and then you show up and find it in like 15 minutes. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing really beats that. You couldn't find it. You loser dude. (laughs) Oh, you mean this thing right here? (laughs) It's like, we, we had a, we have a friend that's been going down to West Texas for like 20 years. And I'm like, man, we got it. Like, I know, I know you want a road cruise. And like, yeah, that's the best way to turn up a lot of numbers, but I can't take it for more than about 30 minutes. Like 
All yeah. they were finding were little Aatrox that we were swinging right. on. Uh-huh. Well, that wasn't that wasn't the West Texas. That was Australia. Oh. Uh, that was uh, Arizona. Oh, but we oh, we'll Texas. get to that yeah, one. It's same, yeah. same guy, different trip, different <laughs> trip. Yeah. And so he's been down there. He's found like almost everything you can find in West Texas, right? But he hadn't found uh, Colionics reticulatus oh, yet. Oh yeah. Uh, and so we're uh-huh. like first first night out there. I'm like, dude, let's get out of the freaking car. Yeah. Like literally ten minutes every thirty minutes that we're driving, and I'll be fine. But I'm not just gonna drive all night. So like right, yeah. the, literally the first time. I get out of the car. I walk straight up to a reticulatus, and he was like, "I've been looking yeah, for those for eighteen years." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or we're in we're in Arizona, and it's like this is what Sarah was hinting at. We're driving. I'm like, I told him the same thing. I'm like, dude, I I gotta get out. Like every half hour, sixty minutes, like I gotta get out for ten or fifteen minutes. I don't care if I find one thing when I'm walking around. I find a hundred things on the road. It's more satisfying for me to like hike it up yeah, and find yeah. it. And for so sure. we're literally finding hundreds of freaking like tiny like probably less than a week old like atrox and uh-huh. it's like okay stop for that stop for that i got to a point where i like had a stick and i was just flinging them like 20 feet yeah off the road because <laughs> i'm like the thing the thing will survive this but it's not going to survive getting run over by the car you know uh-huh. that are the cars that are coming so i'm like peace out i'm like i do this like a hundred times i'm like dude we gotta freaking get out we finally stop. Sarah pops off like this massive black tail rattlesnake. Wow, and while they're nice. photographing that, like it was less than 15 minutes out of the car. I got a Gila and I'm like, <laughs> I got a Gila. I got a Gila over there. And our buddy's like, is, is he serious? And Sarah's like, yeah, he's probably serious. Uh. Like, he doesn't get excited. He doesn't get super excited for much. And I'm like, yeah, I got a freaking Gila over here. Like I'd rather find the one Gila and the, and the black tail and like hiking around than a hundred Aatrox on the freaking road. Oh Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny. Like I've, I I have a friend who has a, like a tortoise farm in Arizona. And, uh, when we stay out there, he's always gracious when I've gone out there and let me stay at his place. And it, it's kind of like, it doesn't feel the same because I've seen like, I don't know, three or four Gila monsters at his place, but it's like, they're there to eat the tortoise eggs that are being laid in the ground. Mm -hmm. It feels like shooting fish in a barrel, man. I'm like, this isn't fair. You know, like it's not the same thing. Like if I'm out and I hike one, it'll feel so much cooler, and I'll feel like yeah. a like like I actually found one instead of like versus well, one that's kind of a pest for your friend. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Like the, yeah, and uh, you know, you also touched on a subject uh, a moment ago that that's sort of like near and dear to my heart at the moment. You know, I uh, the the whole you know morph versus wild type discussion thing. It, it's one that I I think about a lot. I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, and, uh, I think it's interesting. I, I've been drawing this, this similarity between herpetoculture and, um, like my art education in some way, you know, in some ways it's like, uh, how, how is the good way to say it here? Like being, you know, you, you see artists who say things like, well, you know, if you're not really drawing from life, if you're not painting from life, then it's like, you're, you're kind of missing the point, you know? And, and I think there's a, there's a similar, a similar feeling for people in herpetoculture in that, you know, if you're not paying attention to sort of the natural history and the context in which the animals you work with came from, then it's like, it, it just feels a little less, um, it feels like you're missing something in a way, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it, it's a, it's a, it's such a strange thing because 
Yeah, I definitely know people like the like what you were just talking about, where people who they work with bearded, you know, maybe a bearded dragon, or they work with a leopard gecko, they work with something, and they couldn't tell you the Latin, they couldn't tell you where they came from, they couldn't tell you, you know, we were we were just having a conversation with Frank Colachico of Reptilian Diaries, one of the last episodes we recorded, mm-hmm. and he noted the weirdness, like the strange disparity between, or I don't I don't know if disparity is the right word, but the weird the weirdness around the fact that crested geckos were once thought to be extinct. Right. And mm-hmm. now you can find them at PetSmart. Like how that is the weirdest thing in the world. And how many people are going to come into PetSmart and know that about, you know, formerly Rachidactylus. Now, what is it? Is Coralophus or something like that? Yeah. Now? Mm-hmm. yeah. You well know, and, Hey, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, like it's, 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 it's just a, it's a cool thing. And, and, and I'm, I'm intrigued because on the one hand, I agree with the sentiment that people should know as much as they can about what they're working with. Um, And then at the same time, I can also understand like how many people, well, actually I should probably ask some people before I make this generalization, but you know, like how many cat breeders, dog breeders, horse breeders, or chicken people who keep chickens, how many of them know sort of like the native origins of those species and where what they're working with. Do they know yeah. that, like, you know, wh- wh- where were wolves first domesticated into dogs, or at least the, the best guess that we have for that? Do you know where the horse the horse evolved? Like, did you know that it evolved on the North American continent and then, you know, moved around across the, the land bridge? Or, you know, what about chickens? It's like, do you know that the, the sort of the wild ancestor to the chicken is still alive or in like Singapore and Southern China? Do you know this? You know, it's like, it's a, it's weird. Um, but I also wouldn't necessarily fault them for not knowing it, but I totally would fault someone working with Euromastics who doesn't know that ornates come from Egypt, Israel, and Jordan. I'd be like, Hey, dummy, what are you doing? You don't know? Like, yeah. Right. It's, a, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of tough. And I don't know. I, I think you touched on it a bit in one, uh, something kind of related. Uh, I, I it might've been the one with Philippe where, where he discussed like some things that might be stressors to animals that, you know, mm-hmm. potentially make them stronger. And, you know, I've got, you know, some people will like, uh, incubate crested gecko eggs at 68 degrees yeah. because, uh, in theory they get better head structure, you know, the head gets wider and the crest get longer and stuff like that. Or you get people that incubate them at 82 degrees because you can get like brighter reds or, you know, yeah. whatever, but the head structure goes just straight to total crap. But some people will incubate like at certain extremes, but in the wild, those eggs never, ever stay sustained at those temperatures. No. Like, yeah. ever. So uh, I had a friend that was doing some uh, research on spiders and different uh, egg, I guess, incubation temperatures. He's like incubating them at sustained low temp, sustained high temp, and then a fluctuation of like, say, 72 to 78. And like, at least in his studies with the spiders, like the ones that have the temperature fluctuation were way more hardy. They've been subjected to different temperatures. So they basically emerge ready for more environmental changes in their, in their lives. So they, they do better with feeding and and just overall everything. And I feel like you probably see a lot of really similar stuff with, you know, animals. I, I find at least on my side for like the new Caledonian stuff. Like I accidentally figured out like the head structure stuff and some color stuff when I was trying to do some temperature sex determination studies like 15 years ago. And 
ultimately came to a point where I'm like, I'm not incubating that warm because their heads look freaking terrible and nobody wants to buy them. But at a certain point you go below and they are essentially lethargic, right? They've been like Mm -hmm. stunted. Yeah. They've incubated for 40, 50% longer. And like, they might have some better structural features, but overall the animals just don't do as well. So like we do Mm -hmm. 72 to 78, just whatever the room temperature fluctuates to and get equally as nice of animals, but that's why our spiders do well too. Yeah, maybe that is why the spiders do well. Yeah. In there. <laughs> there we figured it out. There's, yeah. the, there's your so, spider. Yeah, now we just gotta for. we gotta we gotta freeze them out. <laughs> right. Man. Uh, yeah, it's it's super bizarre. You know, and and like the part of the reason that the um sort of the morph topic is 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 intriguing for me at, at the moment is because I've got I've like recently made the the call to um get involved with um at least one uh uromastics mutation which is uh, yeah i caught that on the on that episode yeah yeah and it's this it's a wild it's a he's a crazy looking animal it's an albino uromastics jri and jesus christ he's nuts i mean he's like the he's one of the gnarliest looking creatures i've ever seen like you know holding him in my hand it's just like jesus and and you know I even I even have my 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 qualms with the idea of like wild type. It's like, well, this this animal, the 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 originator occurred in the wild. You know, I mean, how is how is how is an animal that occurs in the wild, even if uncommonly, how is it not wild type? Like, it, yeah. it, that, you know, that is a wild type creature. You know, and well, that brings me brings me back to one of my most interesting finds that you guys had asked me about that I completely mm-hmm. overlooked because. Uh, how dare you? I w- how could you? <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't field herping when I found it. Oh, okay. Uh. I found a, a scaleless plains garter snake. <laughs> Whoa! What? And the thing was pretty wild looking. I've got photos of it. All I'll have to send. Was it an guys. adult or was it a? Juvenile? No, it was like probably like a week old. Oh okay. wow! Yeah, it was epically small. So Sarah was actually playing a disc golf tournament, and she had played really well that day and was actually getting in, into like a, a, a tie to make it into the finals for like a final four thing. Yeah. And it had just freaking rained like crazy that day. And her competitor was like walking down the sidewalk and I literally like jumped in. She was like mid step on top of this thing. And I like scooped it up. And I was like, this is right before the playoff started. I was like, look, Sarah, it's a lucky charm. And I just like, I didn't even look at it that close. It was soaking wet, right? It's just a tiny uh-huh. snake. And then she wins in the first hole. And I looked at it closer. I was like, holy shit. Like, this is freaking, like, this is freaking scaleless. And right. so, like, at the time, like, I knew there were scaleless. This is like seven, eight years ago, seven years ago. Yeah. And so I was like, at the time, I looked at it, I'm like, I mean, I know there's, like, scaleless corn snakes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm like, I'm like, I don't know. But I don't know, like, at the time, I'm like, I don't know if, like, this is, like, a semi-normal like occurrence in the wild i know i've never found one so i post on like field hurt forums and like everybody freaking shit their pants yeah yeah uh-huh. and uh so that that kind of goes back to like it was a wild animal i have not really much interest in breeding garter snakes but i'm also kind of interested in trying to breed this thing to see you yeah. know it should, in theory it should be a recessive trait and it should reproduce so i did keep it for a couple of years i didn't get any offspring and unfortunately it passed away but uh <laughs> I had a a local, like really well known garter snake breeder that somehow lives like fifteen minutes from me. That kind of gave me a couple of, 
you know, plains garter snake, like nice blizzard albino plains garter snakes to breed to it and a bunch of other stuff kind of set me up and make sure I wasn't going to kill the yeah. thing, you know? Yeah. But yeah. Pretty, pretty interesting, uh, wild find. Yeah. yeah. Dude, that's nuts. We, uh, I, I, I don't know if I've told this story before on the show, but I found, uh, me and my friend Nick Dokai, we found an, a wild albino redback chuckwalla. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Wow. We, we found it in the crevices, you know, just, we were just poking around and, I remember shining, you know, you might take like a, um, like a signaling mirror or, or yeah. like mm-hmm. glass on your phone and you shine it into the crevices to see if there's anything in the crevices. Right. And I remember shining my light into the, or the, this light into the crevice and seeing like, that's a weird looking Chuck, you know, but it wasn't, it was like, you can't, you know, you're not really going to tell for sure until you mm-hmm. really get it out and get your hands on it. And it was, it yeah. was like a, like a large juvenile or small subadult female. And we got it out of the crevice and I was just like, Whoa. We're like, this thing is totally different and weird. And so then we, we, my, my, we came back the next, uh, or actually I think it was like spring when we found it. And we came back in October of, of the same year and we found three baby albinos. And then, Interesting. and then we came back, Nick came back the next spring and found a, an adult female, a wild adult female albino. So clearly that's going around and obviously doing, I mean, you'd think with an animal that has to freaking bask that much that that thing would not thrive or do well. Like it would kind of make sense for, you know, a Zantusia or like, you know, something like that, that might kind of work out. But uh, yeah, that's pretty wild. They're like, we have uh, melanistic uh, gray squirrels around here and stuff yeah, like yeah. it works out it's a nat- natural mutation that just kind of works because it doesn't really have a, a disadvantage to being black right yeah you know? right it stays Same warmer up here, there here in arvada yeah. in, in colorado there's um melanistic foxes that run around all the time yeah. and you're just cool. like what the hell like a weird black fox it's cool like and and it you know the the two things that always come to mind to, for me are I mean, how many, how many times do you see like the cave, either cave dwelling or deep sea dwelling animals that are naturally albino? They're all albino. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, they're just all the natural occurring ones are an albino or something, some weird. Or, based, or damn near albino if they're not. Yeah. 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 And, and then yeah, we and, saw, yeah. no, 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 please. I, you. I was just going to say, we, we saw an albino rock hyrax <laughs> in uh, Tanzania. <laughs> what <laughs> yeah i like I, I was like i was like i had the binos out and i was like guys i'm like it was like it was way out it had to have been like freaking some pictures it had to have been like a hundred yards right at least yeah, it, was, it was like a hundred yards out and i just see this little white thing jumping around on the rocks it's like is that freaking albino rock hyrax i'm assuming it was albino it could have been yeah. uh leucistic right but uh our guide well, the guide was first off was pretty fascinated with me having a red afro and blue and blue eyes. <laughs> so this was like near the end of the trip. He's like, "It's kind of like you, Andrew." <laughs> Just being very unique, very unique looking, I guess. But that's amazing. Uh, that's, so that, that was incredible. that was pretty interesting. And then we found a, a six foot long Sicilian. Oh yeah, in Ecuador that beats the right. the longest recorded Sicilian by twelve inches. Oh. Holy moly. <laughs> so wild. Coming out of the ground. It's yeah. insane. Wow, what so, a trip. Was it like heavy rain starts- when you found it? Or it was it was very wet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. it was like kind of working in and out of like a a mossy like tree root 
like buttress tree type mm-hmm. area. And it was just kind of like working in and out of there. And so like my buddy like started like trying to pull it out carefully because it's like in and out of everything, yeah. you know, like when a snake goes in and it's like yeah, super yeah. hard to like, yeah. so it took like three or four of us like carefully holding on to pieces of it and like pulling it <laughs> out without injuring it. And, you know, I don't feel like it was that much bigger around than like a two and a half or three footer that we would yeah. find, but just yeah. lengthwise. So it just kept freaking coming and coming and coming. And it took like yes. three or four of us to freaking get the whole thing out. Cause you can only see a few inches of it at a time when he first like right. spotted it. Right. Yeah. But yeah, right. it was pretty wild. Amazing. You guys didn't decompress its spine and stretch it out a little bit, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it, yeah. We probably stretched it out like a six or twelve inches. I would say, yeah, yeah, for sure. It seems like it. Yeah. Well, and, and then, you know, I don't remember who told me this. I, it could have been Roy. It could have been Brendan, my uh, the guy who helps me out at the at the shop. But someone like pointed out to me uh, uh, some some conjecture that like the fragmentation of habitat might be leading to an increase in um, uh, just stumbling across genetic variants uh, d- just due to uh, fragmented habitat. And, you that know, would kind of make, yeah, that would kind of uh, make yeah. sense. You wouldn't really think about that. Sense. Like it doesn't necessarily have the opportunity to outcross with something else yeah. that might then knock those exactly. genetics down or, you know, decrease yeah. the chance of two, two hats uh, actually meeting up and producing right. a scalus or albino exactly. or whatever. And, and then also at the same time, you know, you have all kinds of lore, right? It, like, depending on what part of the world you're talking about, there's all kinds of lore about like, well, when an albino buffalo pops up, that means there's going to be, you know, mm-hmm. crazy you know, drought or yeah, crazy some drought, rain or right, tornado. Right, right, right. Which is to say that it happened enough for people to have uh, lore around it, you know, like yeah. it was common enough to be like, you got to watch out for those white buffaloes, dude. It's a real problem, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, it, it and it, now that doesn't also mean that there wasn't habitat and population fragmentation at the hands of native people either. That's not what I'm saying either. I'm just saying it's, it's like yeah. an intriguing, it's just intriguing to think about, you know, mm-hmm. it's pretty weird stuff. Um, uh, well, so we, we're coming up, like we're creeping up at two hours here and, and I've, uh, uh, sometime in the next 20 ish minutes or something, uh, I'm going to have to go because, uh, my wife and I are, are going to go see my my mom's for for dinner. Um, cool. But uh, before before we do that, there's uh, we we do have just a couple of questions, and then sort of our closer question before we before we do that. Um, Roy, I want to give you a, a little more room to to hop in because I can just talk. Oh no, it's that's fine. You, I mean, we you've been hit, asking a lot of the same questions I would be, so it's, it's no, all good. I like hearing your voice, man. You got a great voice. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, thanks, thanks. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like kind of on the spot now. Um, <laughs> I don't like that feeling either. <laughs> okay. Well, well, it's just like, it was like one of those moments where like my brain just went totally blank for a second. <laughs> but um, I mean, I, w- I was, I was curious about um, like, what about, I mean, we've kind of already talked about this a little bit, but if there's something about new Caledonian species specifically that, that have, captivated you you know is like is it um anatomical characteristics is it the way they look is it is it the way that you keep them what about it has has allowed those species to have such staying power for you i mean even if you just took a like a wild type crested gecko like i think that's a freaking cool animal like it's a really nice size animal like they feel super soft 
like just structurally, like overall size. I mean, the fact that, you know, you can get by with feeding it a, you know, a meal replacement powder essentially. Um, and you're not restricted to having crickets or roaches or something on hand all the time. We do anyways. Um, mm-hmm. But like all of those things are certainly pros, uh, essentially room temperature, you know, don't have to have artificial lighting. Uh, I mean, there's so many pros and I've gotten to a point now where like, I don't force anybody to handle or look at anything. But one of my favorite things, like if we're at a reptile show and somebody brings somebody there that has zero interest in reptiles and they just came along yeah, and like, you get them to kind of like look at it and they're like, all right, yeah, that's not like a snake. And it's not like slimy or scaly or whatever right and you get somebody like that to like touch one or handle it or something like that when before they had zero interest in it um i think that's one of my favorite things whether it's a kid or an adult or whatever and then um i mean obviously all the colors and morphs and patterns and stuff and then you've got the kahua are like they're kind of on a different level for the new caledonian species they're they're pretty mm-hmm. smart for a gecko, like up there with tokes, we would say. So it's fun kind of seeing their different different character characteristics mm-hmm. and stuff with each individual gecko. So um, cool too. But yeah, just, I mean, the colors and patterns and obviously you got like lychees, which are freaking huge and super cool. Um, there's just, there's so much variety and just the overall like care and conditions needed to, to have them really do quite well are not difficult to to achieve. So they're, they're fantastic for beginners or, you know, as advanced as you want to go with, you know, how elaborate you want to set the cages up or, or whatever. And then I think you guys have kind of hit on this a little bit in some previous episodes, but it's nice to offer, you know, I can, I can sell a Crested Gecko for 50 bucks or thousands of dollars. It's really nice to have like a species that like you can get somebody into as like their first pet or they can go as crazy as they want with however much money, you know, they might want to invest in it or something. Um, so I, I like to keep a variety. We keep like a bunch of morning geckos and stuff here too. So just like having the variety and price points, like mm-hmm. I, I think it would be for me difficult to only keep like higher price point animals because I want to be able to get stuff to anybody that might be interested in keeping a reptile. And I feel like if you're only keeping animals that are a thousand bucks, like that's going to eliminate 99% of the the population that might be interested in, in possibly getting into something like that. So. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. I would say, I would say, I would say that's definitely a, a lot of it. Um, there's just so much variety and color and patterns and everything going on with the different species. And at least on like the Kahua, like the fully prehensile tail is pretty, mm-hmm. is pretty wicked. It's super strong. And I mean, they'll just wrap that thing around and hang on and their eyes are super wicked and. They're really yeah. cool lizards. I, 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 um, yeah, I just I was just admiring some kahuas recently at a at a friend's shop opening. They had a few of them there, and nice. I, I'd never really spent time to just like sit and look at one up close for a while. And I was like, yeah, these are actually really amazing creatures. Yeah, initially, like, like if you just get so obsessed. Yeah, initially, if you just see like a baby, they're usually like brown and like not super colorful, yeah. and then the color kind of like comes in what as, I've seen. as they get bigger. So you see a little one, you're like, ah, oh, it's got its tail curled up like a snail, you know, like yeah. it's just like yeah. all coiled up. And you're like, that's, oh, it's, it's kind of cool, but you don't get like a full appreciation in my opinion until you get to interact with like a sub adult or an adult totally. um, and just like see the size and like just the overall like build and strength and stuff of an animal that size is pretty, is pretty cool. Definitely. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, I've got another question that um, I would feel remiss if I didn't ask Sarah about like, what is the overlap for you or relationship between your disc golf passion and your herpetoculture passion? Yeah. Well, I guess as far as like how often I go disc golfing versus or what, like what, I guess I just mean like, how does it all fit together? Cause it seems like that's like another thing that's like really, you know, a big part of your life. Yeah. And, um, and I'm curious if it's like, is it something that like helps you like get away from herpetoculture and like decompress and just like get into a different mode? And I'm always yeah, curious about that, that kind of thing because most times, but sometimes the competition yeah. gets stressful too. But yeah. um, oftentimes I find myself when we're out on the course, like, especially when we're like down in Tennessee or somewhere like mm-hmm. that, like, herping while I'm playing around. So it yeah. kind of actually brings both things together. Like, and that relaxes me um, in, a, in yeah. the middle of a round too, you know, just to distract me from whatever might be going on. So sometimes yeah. there'll be sure. like a, a hole or two backup where it's like, oh, I'm going to be sitting here for 10 minutes. So one time when you're in Tennessee, Sarah pops up, she's like, Hey, check it out. She's got like an, an adult rough green snake that she just like yes. just pulled off of something. And so it's pretty interesting. I don't like to scare anybody. I like to give people the opportunity to like come and check something out yeah. if they want. But yeah. like most of the players, both the men and the women know now that we're like super into this shit. And right. so they'll like, if they find something, they seek us out to find out what it is. Or like, if we find something, most of them are pretty interested, even if they're not like, super stoked on snakes they'll at least learn about it so sarah had caught that rough green snake and we got some other players to like take photos with it and then literally before the next hole had started i i'd pulled a caught a garter snake that saw cruising and the people are just like what is like where are you guys coming up with this crap i'm like it's literally (laughs) everywhere literally everywhere i pulled we had uh players in uh, virginia that were like Oh, pretty sure we got some copperheads over here. And usually that's a northern water snake or something, you know. Right. Um, yeah. But sure as shit, there were like two copperheads banging like <laughs> 10 feet away from the basket. And I was like, all right. I'm like, those should probably move. So like I was able to get sticks under both of them and like move mm-hmm. them off to a brush pile. And they stayed hooked up the whole time. So amazing. That's awesome. But amazing. it's funny. Love like it. At the one course, at the one course, uh, there are a couple of like the uh, commentary, like live commentary guys that like, go around and, and do stuff. And a couple yeah. of them are into herping too. And some of the other players will take out herping on trips. Um, nice. And so the one guy uh, got a, a timber, like a maybe a yearling timber while the round was going on. And so they had coverage of the little timber cruising out of the, the course. And then the other guy helped um, in the middle of his round, helped the, uh, one of the guys get a copperhead in a bucket to relocate and stuff. So we kind of help out it. at least like educate some of that you know, some of those people, but at least maybe have an appreciation for things and like, don't yeah. just shove your freaking hand or your leg, like in a bush yeah, watch for with, your... without yeah. looking first. <laughs> Probably a wise, a wise uh, piece. Yeah. Of... <laughs> oh, that's I'm always crazy. just curious about that. Like how, like, yeah, the different, the different things that we take on overlap like that. So I'm glad I asked that question. Well, we yeah, I'm glad you asked definitely it. the priority goes to obviously like making sure everything's taken care of here, but we also you have to get out of the house. Yeah. I mean, we're, we yeah. probably were gone like 10 to 12 weeks for like disc golf this year. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that. I noticed that that like just, just being like friends on Facebook, they, the, it seems like it's like a big part of what y'all are doing, big part of your life. And yeah, it's like a minimum for a tournament. If it's like kind of close, it's a minimum of three to four days. 
which when it's that we can usually just cycle feeding to like not hit during that like we yeah. stagger feeding so it's like okay we still have somebody pulling hatchlings and like checking on other things and like doing things here but if it's you know sometimes we're gone for a week or two weeks straight like a couple times it you know throughout the season or we try to hit a vacation for herping or whatever so mm-hmm. right right Love it. Excellent stuff. Very nice. Well, so then uh, I have one more question before the kind of closer. And like uh, the ba- the basic question is, um, what what does the future look like for you guys? Like, do you you know do you guys have sort of um, any any particular goals or or projects that you're kind of looking to achieve in the next X amount of time, or is it more of a a maintain keep, just keep steering the ship straight kind of thing? What what's the future look like for for the two of you? Well, I don't think we're really looking to grow numbers necessarily. I feel like we're pretty maxed out in the space that we have. Um, But maybe cut back on, you know, reading some of the crested geckos or something and then start focusing on, I don't know, the Keyserling eye or something like that, just to kind of mix things up a little bit, you know, and not have Mm -hmm. quite so many of the same species or whatever. But I don't don't feel like we're really going to increase the numbers too, too much anyway. Yeah, I think that's something that uh, we kind of touched on a little bit earlier, but we never really got into it is just like trying to keep things interesting and like and not overdo it with the numbers. A lot of people Mm -hmm. will be like, all right, I'm going to pair up a freaking 100 crested geckos. It's like, all right, well, are you ready for 1500 babies? Right. Because you can definitely get a thousand to fifteen hundred hatchlings in, you know, that that number of, of animals. I mean, even even pairing up 20 or 30, you can very, very easily have 300 or 400 hatchlings. Like it's a lot. Yeah. And so, I mean, I've got some animals that have produced like, you know, 16 to 20 eggs in a season. And it's nice that they're staggered every month, but at the same time, it's like, man, I mean, it it definitely builds up. Like we're, we're going to have eggs and hatchlings from right now, not even hatching until March of next year, (laughs) you know? And it's just going to like, it's going to be constant. So trying to like that's make sure you don't get males. Like, yeah. That's with pulling males in freaking mm-hmm. June or May, you know, they can retain wow. sperm for 12 months oh, yeah. plus sometimes. Yeah. So, but yeah, just trying to keep the numbers like at a semi comfortable. I think, I think Phil Tremper kind of hit on that too, is like trying to mm-hmm. keep in, in your zone and trying to keep the, the numbers, uh, you know, to a point where you still can go do something else that you want to do and not just feel like you're stuck in your basement 24 seven and stuff like that, or, you yeah. know, be able to travel or whatever. Yeah, I don't feel like we have much of a desire to hire help. Like mm-hmm. we don't want to get so big that we have to hire somebody or not be checking on it. We like to be able to look at the animals and. Yeah. We have a very, fan- what's going on. We so. have a very fantastic helper for when we are gone and she absolutely loves it, which is super great. Um, that's awesome yeah so shout shout out to melinda if she ever watches this because she's a freaking absolute lifesaver um but yeah finding good help is tough yeah yeah it's huge yeah i need to find somebody for for when i go camping and stuff just to have some more eyes over here yeah 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 brian and i i talked a little bit about that uh, when we had our show with him because i know he's got a guy who helps him out. And I had recently at the time brought on someone to help me at the shop here. And it's boy, you want to talk about something that makes you uneasy. Um, 
That's and and thanks Especially when you got a guy like Brendan. Yeah, Brendan, the worst, dude. What what a loser, man. No, he's no, he's awesome. We had him on the show too. And 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 it worked out because he's the dude's a rock star. He's like a super sweet. Yeah, he's great. Guy. He's really dedicated and he's 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 uh he's he brings a lot to the table. So it's not just it it's not as simple as like I just pay him to pick up poop. It's like he's a he's a bigger role and, and he's yeah, he sure. actually pays attention and looks at the animals and yeah. knows if there's an issue and they need to be split up or whatever. Yeah. I mean, he's noticed stuff that I've missed completely, uh, you know, and he's made suggestions about what we ought to do for, uh, you know, he's like, if you, if you thought about maybe if we do this and I'll be like, I hadn't thought about that. Let's give it a shot, man. I'm like, I, it's, it's really great too. Cause he's like a little bit younger and um, giving him the opportunity to be like, look, you want to try something? Go for it. Like, I, even if I, even if I know the answer, like, yeah, run, I, run it by me first, but let's chat about it and give yeah, it a yeah. go. Yeah, man, let's do it. You know, it's great. He, you know, and, and sometimes it surprises me, uh, you know, like he's, he's caught things happening that I would have missed, you know, just purely by accident. Like it just so happened that I was in the other room feeding baby euros and he was out in the big room catching the butterfly agama ma- uh, females mating like the two females populating somehow mm-hmm. it's like it's like okay i know yeah it's like all right weird and then it was, like, it was two days after the, the the male was copulating with one of the females and we were like all right these are really some amorous butterfly agamas let's go you got know? Some, yeah i got some hyena hyena action going on yeah. there or something yeah. yeah 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 you know so it you know but and then there's been other stuff too you know other other suggestions he's brought to the table but i you know and, and it's weird i would have i would have said i have said in the past like i can't imagine growing to a point where i need help and in and in, the, in this sense it, it wasn't growth that did it it was the desire to pursue a secondary career option that, that would help me um, do a little bit more and have a little bit more uh, like freedom in, in some ways, actually. it's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could, I could see, I could <laughs> see trickling somebody in for a few hours, yeah. you know, a couple times a week or whatever, but yeah, to just rely on somebody all the time or have somebody on full time, I don't really want to get to that point. I we right. were actually offered, well, uh, for a, a stretch, we were, strongly considering moving out to California to help Alan. Oh, wow. And I was basically just going to go through all the stuff he normally like wholesales and pick the highest end stuff and either set up breeding groups for that or just, you know, select those animals and, and, and photograph them and sell those. Um, and that ended up not working out just because we didn't, you know, Sarah had got her vet tech certification in California and we were looking at houses and stuff. We ended up not doing it. Um, and then when Alan got out of everything, he offered me his, his gargoyle collection yeah. And his petco and his petco contract, and I was like, Whoa. I just I have no interest in producing that many animals. Like it seems like it just take all the fun out of it. It's it's interesting to go and visit a facility like that and like go through the animals and and whatever. But like to be locked into that uh, just seems like it would zap all the enjoyment out of it for me. Right. Right. And then to help, to help here, I mean, we do have like a bunch of stuff set up on like misting system, like a a super advanced misting system. That's pretty killer. Um, Mm -hmm. and some other things that at least help kind of keep things going for, if we're just gone for a few days or whatever, but. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. Well, uh, Roy, do you want to, do you want to throw out the the closer here? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, our closing question, it's the same on every show. You've probably heard it if you listen to a couple of the others and um, it's why herpetoculture? 
And that could be, why do you do it? Why do we do it? Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Why herpetoculture? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the best answer is why not? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's, there's so many reasons to do it. And there's so many reasons to have hobbies or interests of any kind. Um, you know, I'm still going to make fun of my friend for going to like an anime convention. Mm-hmm. But like, I understand, hey. I understand, I understand <laughs> it. And I'm like, we're joking, but I understand it from a perspective. Like I go to reptile shows and people think I'm a freaking dork for doing that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like there are people that collect rocks and there are people that, you know, breed tarantulas or bugs or stamp, you know, keep stamps. They don't breed stamps. I don't think that probably works, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's, there's so many things. That's how that, they do it. Yeah. They just, the stamps are over there copulating <laughs> in the corner, sticking, <laughs> sticking together. Um, yeah. I, I just, I don't know. I mean, there's so many, there's so many freaking cool things. And and when you're as like detail oriented and like fascinated by just like mm-hmm. uh, either how stuff works or like the intricacies that you can find in like colors and patterns and, and stuff, whether it's, you know, a tiny little bug or a freaking badass lizard or whatever, like I'm all for it. And I just get fascinated by that stuff. So. Awesome. I think the educational side of it is rewarding too. Like like he was saying at the sh- at the reptile shows that we go to, there's nothing better than seeing a little kid's light eyes light up when they see a crested gecko lick its eye for the first time or something like that. You know, where <laughs> they just have no idea. Or yeah. like even our nephew, he's really into he's gotten really into ants and like developing these colonies of ants and building terrariums for them and every like intricate terrariums. He's 12 years Ooh. old. He went to a show with us last last week and it. I think it really opened his eyes. Like I could do like people do this, like, you know, so yeah, he's got his, got his first praying mantis. And then the guy that he got him from, like was answering all of his questions and everything at the end of the show, he came over and gave him another species. He's like, here, try this one out, man. And and this kid was like, this kid was so jazzed. I mean, at at 11 o'clock in the morning, he asks the dreaded question, how much longer (laughs) is this going to be? And I'm like, dude, Uh the show opened like an hour ago. And I'm just, I'm like, I'm like, hey man, it's it's like another four hours. He goes, okay, good. And, his face and I was like, I was like, all right. I'm like, this is this is good. And then like nearing the end of the show, he's just like, that was a really fun day. Like That's this kid awesome. is, you know, not super social, but a lot of us aren't like in those kind of situations mm-hmm. unless you get somebody that's dorking out over the same stuff. And yeah, and he was just super pumped the whole time. So that that kind of stuff keeps us going for sure. Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah, I love that. Really good way yeah. to great answer to the question. I love it. Thank you for that. Uh, well, so uh, where can I mean um, we'll have like links and and uh, and whatnot in the show description and whatnot. But uh, where can people find you guys and what you're up to on the internet? Uh, LACherps.com. Same for LACherps for Instagram and Facebook. Um, we mostly post uh, photos and just interesting stuff on Instagram that then trickles into Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, those are going to be the main three and anybody can shoot us any, any messages or just follow along. If you want to see some dope pictures of gecko eyeballs or, you know, <laughs> people, whatever, whatever. He's, he's serious about the photography. So you got to do uh, it. Yeah. 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 It's come a long way since the toke on the carpet. <laughs> yeah. We should do a before and after photo of like a toke from that old school one. Cause it's like, yes. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I would love to see the pointillistic toke uh, for one. Yeah. I'd love yes, to I'll try like, to find it. It's real. Well. It's really bad. 
<laughs> we need we need photos for the the quote tile that we release every episode. So maybe yeah, we can send that, that one. one for that. Yeah, that's a great yeah, idea. OG. Oh my god! Okay. Yeah, I'll try to find it for you. Honestly, I probably won't even. You probably won't have to shrink it down. The full image is probably like this big. Oh my god! Perfect. This That's is even amazing. easier for me. <laughs> yeah, that'd be so funny because so many of the ones that we make are like these really, uh, like I used to make them and then Roy took over the duty and he's way better at making those quotiles than I am. <laughs> and like the, 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 we, we go through a lot of pains to make like nice looking pictures to put a quote on and, and have like a, like a, you know, basically like a, a, a cover for the episode basically. Yeah. Right. And it would be so funny to have like this, just like this ratty picture of a toke gecko total, total dog shit photo that you couldn't even take one that bad if you like yeah. ma- manually tried to make it that bad oh you my absolutely god. couldn't do it that'd be awesome oh my I god i guess you probably could if you took the original image and then you shrunk it down to like this big and then you blew it up like this big and then you cropped that and then you did that a few <laughs> times you might you might come close but oh my god that's the funniest thing i've ever heard oh my god i love it Oh, we got to do it. Okay, sweet. Well, um, oh, I think our visual died, so it's a perfect time because my battery yeah, yeah, died perfect on my time. camera. Yep, perfect there timing. There it goes. Perfect timing. Well, all, all right. right. Well, thank you so much, y'all. It's been a pleasure, and we'll definitely, um, we'll definitely have all the links posted, and look forward to the next time we all get to chat. Sick. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Right. Thank you so much. Good night. Good night. Bye, bye, guys.